Welcome to Lean Back. I'm Laura. And I'm Lisa. And today we're talking about rage. So I guess I've been thinking a lot about political emotions because I'm writing about them right now in this new book and thinking about how rage functions as a very kind of temporal emotion, right? Like it's hard to sustain rage. It comes in bursts. It doesn't last. You can't prolong it without tremendous amounts of energy. So it's often linked in, especially social movements, literature with explosions and fires and rebellions and sort of this this notion that rage is an explosive burst right that happens and then subsides right and so i guess i've been thinking a lot about the the temporal aspect of rage as something that is hard to sustain but that is inevitable in capitalist economies and certainly under neoliberalism Especially like with the news cycle when like Occupy Wall Street was mm-hmm. a huge energizer for rage against uh, capitalism. Corporate elites. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And like the Me Too movement as being like a rage-driven movement in a lot of ways. And now there's less and less uh, conversation about that as the days go on. So... Right, I think we can see how rage operationalizes in the media. Yeah, I mean, rage is good for news cycles, for sure. But I think that rage emerges when formal political options are foreclosed. So, you know, there's a reason why scholars compare the election of Trump to the abdication of LBJ. It's because 1968 and 2016 are moments of racial liberalism, right, that sort of expose how liberalism continues to be built off of racist and sexist and classist um, hierarchies of power. And when LBJ left office, it's an important moment because you have the the birth of neoconservatism after Barry Goldwater's publication of Conscience of a Conservative in 64 that catalyzed law and order culture and white rage. Dan Carter has a really great book um, called The Politics of Rage is All About Whiteness and Segregationist and Southern Manifesto and the way that whiteness particularly harnesses rage, even in liberal cultures, as a way of maintaining Uh, racial order and I think certainly like second wave and third wave feminism have written a lot about how male rage white male rage um, actually maintains gender hierarchies too the interesting thing about this Trump moment is the way that the class reductionists sort of want to think about what happened in Trump country and why all these white voters voted for him and they either want to reduce it to just class or just race when really the answer is both right that race works as a sort of separate hierarchy that has a different material history that's co-constitutive of class too at the same time it's it's not either race or class it's both of them constituting whiteness for the elites who are you know, doing the smash and grab capitals thing, and then the white poor who are also being left out of liberalism's equation for equality. And so I think that there are a lot of parallels between 68 and 2016 in terms of the way that white rage gets harnessed and then the way that black rage, because that's obviously my area of expertise, emerges, right, because there is no formal political path. Like Nixon wasn't going to include black power. Trump is not going to, you know, not going to ignore Kaepernick taking a knee. And he's 
he's going to direct the NFL to punish players, right? Like he just met with Jerry Jones today and was like, punish the players. And he's, he's going to ignore BLM. And, you know, there is no formal political space for black activists to um, move an agenda for racial equality forward. And of course, that's the same for the Native Americans, right, who are at Standing Rock. And it's the same for the immigrant kids who are being detained in dog kennels. All of that is the space of liberalism reorganizing white rage around the state. Well, it's interesting because I feel like there are like different vectors for like different kinds of people to be able to express rage. Rage from like a white male is red is more legitimate. The state organizing oh, rage yeah. in that way. It's <laughs> a privilege. I mean, to right. be able to express rage and for it to be valued that is a place of privilege. Donald Trump expresses rage all the time. Inappropriately on everything. That's yeah. his only emotional vector right. is rage. Yeah. Um, women are expected to be, they're expected to make concessions all the time without any kind of expression of disappointment or anger or frustration. And it's even worse, right, when we're talking about like the state versus black folks, black activists trying to achieve racial equality like they operationalize rage a lot and it's not validated <laughs> by the state and in fact they're punished for it um, and I feel like gun violence has been a direct result of that and state gun violence against black people has been a direct result of that. Yeah it's because white rage fundamentally secures white property a hundred percent. I mean, that's how capitalism works. I mean, rage is about control, so that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Like, people trying to maintain control of what property they have and gain more control by acquiring more property, but... <laughs> yeah, I think that that's true. I also think, I mean, it's not incidental that there's all this conversation about white fragility and snowflakes in the moment when white rage is emerging as the emotional vector of statism, right? Because, I mean, there's no doubt that Trump is producing and harnessing um, white fragility, white masculine fragility as like the preferred vector of like the polis. Like that's, that's the embodied ideal citizen is the ragey white dude who can't take criticism, who can't manage racial or gender stress, who can't adapt or pivot as the nature, as the, as the nation changes. All of that becomes wound up into ideal citizenship and ideal governance. And obviously governance is not a thing that's happening well right now. I mean, it's like a Frankenstein, right? That's just constantly shitting the bed. But nonetheless, it does seem like the, um, like the political emotion of rage is transforming um, the nation, both from the people and from the executive branch and the legislative branch, into a space where deliberation is not no longer valued and that's that's because of the temporality of rage right it just happens in bursts like tweets right you can just let it out and it's just relentless explosions of mm -hmm. anger that turn people off to politics that short circuit their ability to converse about difficult things that shorten their attention span for difficult ideas that fragment I, coalitional politics that end bipartisanship 
all of that stuff is wound up into what happens when the state occupies rage as its orientation towards the citizenship, which I think is very different from what happens when disenfranchised groups articulate rage as a vector of resistance, as a way of speaking, and sometimes without words, right? But creating a space for voice when formal exclusion is the way that liberalism has been operationalized to build the state. I'm so glad you said that because I feel like it's not fair to talk about rage in like those two different ways like it's the same or like that the emotion is like legitimate in the same way for both parties because when the state uh embodies rage they they're enraged when they feel like their power is threatened even if it's legitimately so yeah or like when donald trump feels threatened by like legitimate accusations against his person (laughs) um it's not fair for us to talk about rage as legitimate when it's that versus like I mean there are legitimate feelings of rage because of poverty and segregation poverty segregation enslavement mm-hmm. yeah condensation neglect like there are smaller things like personal feelings rejection that like are legitimate causes of rage that <laughs> are more legitimate, I think, than... Yeah, I mean, the thing that we're living... This is why I draw the parallel to 68, because, you know, the the emotional moment of 1968 is one where protest is equated with crime. And we are in that moment again, right? Where subaltern rage, or the rage of the oppressed people, is understood as anti-citizenship as a as an emotional performance of something that is fundamentally anti-american and anti-state and that is what gives legitimacy to the state destroying opposition and those moments like i say in a lot of the you know episodes those are cyclical they are recursive moments that reappear and they and and they come back be, precisely because they are features and not bugs of liberalism right i mean there's just no way around that except I think for liberals to have a very serious conversation with themselves about the history of liberalism and its racial and sexist and classist dimensions and the way that liberalism has been used to justify exclusion even when the idealized form of liberalism is like equality for all people, right? I mean, even when you have these founding documents that are articulating a liberalism that is beyond identity politics, that is beyond the white property, land-owning white man, right? Beyond that, even though that's the ideal sort of platonic form of liberalism, that is not how it has been operationalized in the West at all, right, from from, the, from its beginning. So I think that there is an in- interrogation that has to happen about that. And I also think that we can't talk about fragility and rage without talking about anxiety and rage. Because I think that this is a hyper-anxious moment around the globe for all of the peoples, but especially the white folks um, in the West who are grappling with Uh, the decline potentially of new empires modern empires right the ones that were consolidated after the end of world war ii and so it's like how do you deal with the anxiety of a 24-hour news cycle and how do you deal with the anxiety of america browning and how do you deal with the anxiety of changing definitions of citizenships around property or marriage right or the other kinds of social contracts that build property relations and property hierarchies 
all of that is contributing to a, a, a global anxiety that is only exacerbated by state rage. Right. It's interesting, though, because I feel like in a time of such anxiety, we would expect more re resistance or more protest. And it's kind of weird how that's been stifled and how rage is more like... I feel like rage is taken out in a lot of, like, individual expressions of anger and not, like, as a collective expression of anger. It happens, and it happens sometimes, but it dies out, you know... <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I guess I I guess I see rage from the state side, right? The white supremacist, <coughs> smash and grab capitalist, sexist, um, you know, like homophobic, anti-immigrant, build the wall folks as stoking the constancy of state rage. So that's happening in domestic violence, and it's happening in you know, inside the households, and it's happening in workplaces, like it's happening at NBC, obviously, and it's happening at Fox News, right, where you, and it's happening at, you know, with Weinstein, right, it's happening in all of these spaces in huge, huge, huge ways, structurally, that maintain white rage in an organizational sense. Uh, in terms of the resistance, yeah, no, there's not. it's not going to look like the social movements of the 60s because the news cycle is 24 hours, because unemployment is actually very low in America, because of the erosion of public education and unions since, you know, Brown v. Board in 1954. Like, there are a bunch of things that have changed so that social protests will look very different now than it did then. Um, and I also want to object to the idea of resistance as it's been articulated, especially since Trump was elected, because I think resistance is like super low-hanging fruit. It's like buying the t-shirt off of Amazon that states your identity politics and it's going to a march, but it's not doing the day-to-day -day work of community organizing or like the values-driven stuff that's much harder and um, more demanding. And so I just, I don't think that... Um, white America in particular is ready to make sacrifices for equality because they've bought into their this idea that they're liberals or they've already bought into the smash and grab capitals and they're just like 100% on board with the neo-Nazis. Uh, so I think that the protest as it emerges will be really uneven <laughs> and it will not look like the 60s at all. It'll be aesthetic, so it'll be Gambino's This Is America video or it'll be Lemonade, right? There'll be these aesthetic interventions that do not transform culture, but that highlight inconsistencies and paradoxes within liberalism. And it will be local, super, super local organizing within municipalities, right, around specific local issues. But I just don't see, like, social movements being the place where rage is going to emerge as this counter to Trumpism because I don't know that Trump is really the problem. I think that he is the symptom and not the cause there are artistic works that are expressions of rage that are kind of helping translate like those feelings <laughs> um i don't necessarily think they're a substitute for resistance but they're they're an expression of like a collective feeling <laughs> that's extremely real i feel like we have to talk about the, the fact that this is america uh donald glover's video in particular um, how it's a reaction to violence against black people and how rage is like a legitimate reaction to that and how his 
the way he emotes in that video is like extremely powerful because he's forcing people to see what kind of emotions, like the range of emotions that are felt based on like um, violence against black people and how they're treated like uh, collectively um, in terms of like their lack of economic mobility and opportunity and um, the lack of investment in places that aren't like upwardly mobile urban <laughs> like mm -hmm. the south the delta in Arkansas I mean the lack of investment in areas where there are people <laughs> who I mean without any kind of investment there's no opportunity yeah I mean you know thinking about this is America I was thinking about um, Nikki Giovanni's um, black feeling black talk black judgment and she's got a, a bunch of that book deals with black rage in the 60s especially after the assassination of Martin Luther King and I think that there is a kind of an exceptionalist space actually for black rage in America that doesn't exist for brown people or mm -hmm. for yellow folks or right the entire other range of colors that form hierarchies of uh, racism that is pr productive but that also fundamentally is shaped by um, a white unwillingness to deliberate um, ignorance about the dynamics of violence that shape black and brown life in America. And so I think that, you know, best case scenario for this Trump moment is that the production of commentary by black and brown folks about rage helps white people confront their fragility. Although in <laughs> the communication <laughs> data kind of shows us that those confrontations, if they're not totally nuanced, just reinforce white supremacy. So it would be very interesting to see how, you know, the aesthetic interve interventions either confirm, right, white supremacist confirmation bias or undermine it. And, and, I, and, I, and so that's for white people. For folks of color, though, I, the expressions of rage are really important for in-group solidarity, right? Even beyond how the expressions of rage are processed by the dominant ruling class, there is totally value, 100%, in producing rage as a kind of social cohesion, as a political emotion that recognizes suffering and that articulates um, vectors of dispossession and that work through cultural trauma. I mean, there's value aesthetically to it. The problem is in translating the aesthetic critiques into political action. Certainly this is where the Panthers ran into problems. Even though their survival programs were really in, I think, a lot of assessments fairly successful um, in the communities where they existed to feed the kids and do breakfast programs and library drives and mobile health clinics and things like that. But it'll be very interesting to see if the rage translates into an operationalized politics. I have written also about the white left. And so I'm thinking about Bernie Sanders here. I wrote a piece about how the Sanders campaign was operationalizing um, its 
progressivism on the same emotional wavelength as Trumpism, trying to harness white rage. And it's interesting because Bernie did it by harnessing black bodies, by by traveling to Coachella with Killer Mike, right? And it's like, okay, well, what happens if you just take black rage and then the old white socialist guy harnesses black rage as the way of articulating white frustrations with liberalism? And that seems to be the tactic that it, that it has to take. It, well, I don't know that it has to take it, but it has taken. Mm. That seems to be the tactic that progressives have taken is harnessing black voice to f- to um, give v- you know voice to white frustrations with capitalism. Yeah, but which is racist. <laughs> well, it is racist, and those black frustrations aren't given legitimacy otherwise, unless they're like oh yeah put on a pedestal with a white <laughs> sponsor. Yeah, so that's not fair. No, <laughs> no, but it is that that is the paradox of liberalism. That's why liberalism is fa- is foundationally a racist endeavor that has a racist history. That doesn't mean that it can't be recuperated, perhaps, right? That there aren't useful things in the ideation of liberalism that can't be saved as like platonic ideals that we would want to move towards in terms of equality. But it does mean that the history of liberalism is so checkered and so polluted by racial assemblages that it becomes very difficult to disaggregate political strategy from what is the production of political feelings. So, you know, it's useful in thinking about how all poor people suffer from capital, right? But it's very difficult to get white poor people to think of themselves as a cohort or a coalition with black poor people because of racism. That's real. Like, that is a real structural impediment, a material structural impediment to doing long-term organizing around class. And until we manage that, there is no space for a progressive left in the United States, regardless of, like, what kinds of... Um, you know, aesthetic interventions we're enjoying as progressives on the internet. Like, that is an ameliorative. That is why resistance is not the same as revolt, (laughs) right? Absolutely, yeah. That's not to say that you can't enjoy aesthetic Mm -hmm. pleasures. All movements and all political moments of revolt have tons of pleasure in them. You can't have the pain without the pleasure. It's That's unsustainable. But that is to say that it can't all be pleasure, Right. right? Well, I mean, I feel like also being able to enjoy the aesthetic production of rage can kind of keep you from employing it for yourself and for your own, um, like, pursuit of equality and rights. Um, Oh, yeah. I totally agree. So, I mean, I don't know. And I also feel like there are a lot of cultural productions that, like, um, encourage apathy and encourage like the idea of like being chill and being cool and not getting worked up um so i think there's like we're able to watch people uh embody rage a lot of the time but like it producing rage yourself is frowned upon generally unless you're a white man I don't know. Really? <laughs> I mean, I mean, I collectively like white men are aggressive in general, but I don't know if rage is encouraged. I don't know. I feel like white men are totally encouraged to have man tantrums with impunity. 
Like, there are very few social spaces where a man's going to lose his job about his rage. But I think about Barack Obama as a president, right, as a symbolic, right, shattering the ceiling for black Mm men. And, I mean, that dude could not express any rage ever about anything. And that's not just because he is part of a neoliberal regime that also, you know, positions his blackness as both part of racial liberalism and as a critique of it. But, I mean, in terms of the identity politics of him as a black man, he is unable to perform that. I mean, I guess for me, as a Gen Xer, when I think about sort of alternative discourses of rage, I think about the Riot Girls and sort of the music of the 90s, especially third-wave feminist music. I'm thinking, like, Tori Amos and Alanis Morissette in terms of, like, white feminism and the way that that kind of 90s musical space, that aesthetic space, took on a politics of rage about sexism and rape and homophobia and social violence. That was really formative as a cultural moment during the Clinton years, which is also interesting, right, given Clinton's complicity in... Um, and a kind of sexual politics that we would now totally reject, I think. Um, except if you're Trump, I guess, or a Trump supporter, in which case pussy grabbing is fine. But that that third wave feminist embrace of white female rage, also I think the other side of that is the 54% of white women who voted for Trump, right? Mm-hmm. So there, uh, there is a way in which r- white rage, I think, is hyper, hyper conservative, regardless of... I think a lot of the politics around the identities of people who articulate it, right? There's a convergence around whiteness and rage that is fundamentally probably fascist. Right. And I I still feel like um, the women who express rage in that way and who are articulate about it, I say women, there are plenty of people who are articulate in their rage. They just had a lot of publicity mm-hmm, yeah um the criticism is still extreme like i don't think they ever got like a mainstream public acceptance oh yeah so <laughs> you're right i mean there's this great piece by jack halverstam called imagine violence queer violence representation rage and resistance that i teach a lot and it's all about um imaginary spaces where lgbtq people get revenge on tormentors who are producing social violence around queer bodies and i love that piece because it's all about what happens in imagined violent spaces and this is why i kind of defend eminem right like his mom almost beat him to death and right brain damaged him and so yeah he's got some beef about women and has an alternative right personality that he uses to manage a bunch of his anxiety and anger about you know woman directed violence at boy children and um And I think about Rihanna and the bi-directional violence between her and Chris Brown and the way that her entire musical corpus is about interrogating structural violence and how it works. And these imaginary spaces, you know, are, are, I think, useful tools in teaching that futurity that I'm always talking about, right? Is how do we imagine new futures? Well, there have to be these spaces of hypothesis testing and these alternative kinds of imaginary worlds where we can untangle race and gender and class and we can untangle violence and as a structural organizational feature of public culture or as an individual response to oppression. There has to be that kind of space to imagine also violence as an ameliorative, right? The way in which people of color or queer people or right disabled people, whoever, 
are operationalizing violence as self-defense. That headspace has got to stay part of the liberal ideal. It has to. It, it's, an, it's, the, it's the space that I think um, revolution and revolt and even minor resistance must flow from. Yeah. I don't know. There's too much, like, cultural pressure to sublimate your anger right now, though. I mean, to, like, keep a cool head and to shut up. <laughs> I mean, to be frank. So, I mean, there are, like, those two forces that are at odds, I feel. Yeah, I mean, I feel like lean in is this obviously a discourse of sublimation for women in the workplace to have no rage. We talked about this a little bit on the consent episode about thinking about lean in and me too as oppositional kinds of like both quote unquote feminist discourses um, that are both, I think, very um, troubling. Like lean in is fundamentally about not showing emotions. It's anti-emotional, right? It is fundamentally about restructuring the disposition of oppressed people in corporate workspaces as like these banal, domesticated, docile bodies that have no voice at all. Mm -hmm. It's not about articulating imagined spaces of retributive violence. It's not about that. Lena is, is fundamentally a discourse steeped, I think, in and the repression of desire and of emotion as reasonable response to shitty policy. Right. I'm like, Stansberg is not like, go yell at your boss about what a sexist and how it's affected your pay as a woman for your entire life. I mean, she's not about confrontation as a rhetorical strategy, right? It's like, go along to get along to go along. I mean, we are trying to contradict that narrative, and we have been for years. <laughs> you and me? Like, yes. Yeah, yeah, right. for sure, for sure. Right, and... Part of that is because we're mad, you know? Perpetually. <laughs> and I, I don't know. I feel like we're using that anger in a productive way. But that's because we use play and humor, which is why season right. one anchored lean back to play and humor as vectors through which you and I personally manage our rage. And there's a gender dimension because we're white chicks. So, you know, as much as I think people expect me to rage in the workplace, mostly I'm the funny chick right mostly my rage is in right turns of phrase and sort of <laughs> devastating faints right mm -hmm. it's that kind of graceful anger that is that comes through humor that is the way that i manage my rage which is perpetual and constantly under the surface and i feel like people respond to that about me right like they read me as somehow volatile even though cuz i cuz it's very clear that i have the capacity to explode <laughs> even though i don't do it you would be very hard pressed to to find people who are like oh yeah i saw corgan lose her shit somewhere right yeah well they're only reading that because like the expectation is like corgan's going to lose her shit somewhere are, well no <laughs> I'm saying, like, you don't lose your shit. No. People just expect women to be timid and, like, to be... Objects. I don't know. Objects. Right. And yeah. to accept condescension <laughs> and neglect and, I mean, a general lack of respect. Yeah. So you don't lose your shit. <laughs> no. 
but I can. But the pro- the problem is not that I can lose my shit. It's just that I have words to describe things. Right. <laughs> right. right. The bigger problem is not will Lisa tap into her anger. It's will she devastate me with a bunch of words that I can- that I have no words to respond to. And I think for um, for the most part, however, I think when rage bubbles up as revolutionary discourse, some of it is vocal but not verbal and some of it is hyperverbal but it's a different ver- mm-hmm. verbalness than white men right so i use all different words than white men know about so th- that creates a kind of clash where they are not driving the discourse that's what vernacularity does whether it's hip hop or whether it's black power or whether it's slang vernacularity right or, what- or whether it's facial expressions micro expressions of yeah pain or contempt contempt or pity Mm -hmm. or revolt or revulsion i mean there are all kinds of micro feelings on the negative side of the political emotional scale i think that function in a similar vector as rage to undermine micro power all the time that's why we like humor right absolutely that's why we like humor it's a much more it's a sophisticated and i don't know that it's much more it's different but it it has fundamentally different constitutive features that also help to perform a similar kind of pushback that rage does as a, as an emotional vector of of uh you know oppositional politics yeah i really like what comedy has done for the expression of anger the be like just how easy it is to translate between like joy and anger joyfulness in your anger and I think that's like a legitimate I don't know I think they can be connected in that way I mean I think that's why Key and Peele were so successful doing Obama's anger translator because a for two reasons one because they were able to you know to really consolidate the idea of a black audience for mainstream comedy as like a thing Right, which obviously has been huge for them and huge for black comedians. I think Chappelle did it on his show, but I think Key and Peele, because they were doing the comedy on on network TV instead of cable, have a different kind of um, assimilative, right, Mm -hmm. social structure to their comedy. But makes the same point, right? Is that here we are translating all of this banal, governed speak by Obama into what black folks would say had if they were given the space to say what they really thought. And that is an imaginary space like Halberstam talks about, about what it means to articulate the alternative, right, locality for the politics of subaltern or oppressed rage and to think through like what are the similarities and differences, what kinds of lean-in postures have to be adopted to accommodate white power within the system, and then how can an oppositional stance uncover the ways that those are micro-power moves that people of color or women or poor people or disabled people or whatever have to adopt, right, to manage the day-to-day stressors of their life that are creating the anxiety and rage that fundamentally inform their their decisions at any given time and i you see this a lot i think with black feminists black feminists are performing a public rage and an organizational rage right now that sometimes succeeds and sometimes fails right because black feminism is sort of coasting on the contours of this discourse about race and gender and the way that they are emerging in this 
particular political moment in ways that sometimes are translatable and sometimes not translatable to other people of color, to other black people, to other women, to white men, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And that, that's a place I think they're, they're finding um, you know, ground at to articulate rage as oppositional culture. Not that there haven't always, always been, right, black women who are doing rage as oppositional culture, right, whether it's Harriet Tubman or Nikki Giovanni or whatever, there is a long line of that. Toni Morrison. Yeah, 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 for sure. So uh, that's not to say that it's new, because it's totally not, but this particular historical moment as black feminists, especially fourth wave feminists who are on the internet or on the TVs mm -hmm. or writing for mainstream shows are doing a different kind of operationalizing of that anger that I think is snowballing in a potentially useful way. I agree. And I think black intellectuals are doing a great job of like mixing vernacular with academies and incorporating different ways of uh, doing research, like mm -hmm. incorporating their own personal histories and the other and individual histories of other black women and doing a lot of support on the interweb, like on Twitter. They're doing mm -hmm. a great job on Twitter of lifting up other black women and lifting up rage yeah. when it's valid. Um, so I, I'm, I've just been really impressed by like the efforts of obviously like Roxane Gay, Brittany Cooper, like black women doing really strong intellectual work. Laverne Cox. Laverne Cox. Uh, the Women at Sisters song. I mean, Repro Justice, I think, is where a lot of political um, black and brown LBGTQ rage it has found a very useful space to think through rage as political action. And so for me, that's been real transformative. But I, yeah, I think that there, I don't know, I think that there is more potentiality for more people to embody rage as political mm -hmm. action from an oppositional perspective now than there ever has been. And in some ways, Trumpism has sort of opened up a radical oppositionality that I hope people occupy as, you know, as a way of training themselves to take up different kinds of space where they can use rage and its cousins contempt, pity, humor, you know, etc. to push back against, you know, neo-fascism. Thanks for listening. These materials are not endorsed, approved, sponsored, or provided by or on behalf of the University of Arkansas Fayetteville.